Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett, and I'll be with you until six this evening to be followed by Done by Law. I hope you can stay tuned. Today we revisit the issue of deep sea mining with Dr. Helen Rosenbaum, co-coordinator of the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. The appalling record of successive Australian governments to assist and settle asylum seekers. We're speaking with retired solicitor Max Costello. Growing awareness and opposition to the cashless debit card with campaigner Catherine Wilkes. More information about the betrayal of the trade union movement by Bob Bork and his work with the CIA with retired unionist Jim McElroy. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when, well, last week we commented on the same day big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs ordered an inquiry into the damage union super funds were causing the esteemed practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all, damage like fiscal indigestion, a totally unbiased, no predetermined outcome inquiry led by the equally neutral ex-Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs poly Tim Wilgett Union son, he also announced he would not allow a review into the at least 25 billion JobKeeper rip-offs by those esteemed practitioners. This week, Josh went one better. He turned the debt collectors loose on workers who received JobKeeper, who therefore, for some reason, owe the government money they allegedly ripped off, many of whom may have been ripped off by their caring employers, as the revelation that caring employers had ripped off at least 25 bill pointed out many had pocketed the windfall and not passed it on to those for whom it was intended. Uh, Josh, why are you going after workers and not going after the 25 bill, or at least 25 bill your mates or, well, caring employers ripped off? Well, obviously, on the one hand, we are dealing with lazy, avaricious workers and doll bludgers, and on the other hand, we are dealing with caring employers. Uh, yes, yes, but, but why treat them differently? Well, obviously, on the one hand, we are dealing with lazy, avaricious workers and doll bludgers, and on the other hand, we are dealing with caring employers. Well, I suppose that's a reasonable explanation. It's the best we're going to get, and the caring employers certainly care for a quid. Oh, and Josh's concern for lazy, avaricious workers and even-handedness toward evil unions was franked when he accused the Socialist Party of hypocrisy for not demanding trade unions who have made donations to the Socialist Party repay JobKeeper payments they received. Possibly, Josh, because they didn't rip off. And Josh would know not one of the caring employers ripping off the at least 25 bill would have ever donated a cent to the caring business class party. Also mentioned last week, the true blue Aussie capitalist reviews speaking for those who understand these things, deaths, part of living with virus. We did suggest it's rather part of not living with, and its proponents don't see themselves as the not living. Well, this week, one of the giant minds of the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party, Matt Canavan of Coal, wrote a whole think piece for the Capitalist Review to elevate it several thousand percent above the thinking that went into it, in which he calculated each life saved by the Sydney lockdown cost the economy 
$330 million. Real figure, listener. He really wrote that. Now, I've got no idea either how he dredged that up. He produced some amazing maths, subsequently demolished by Richard Dennis of the True Blue Aussie Institute, who suggested maths figures were out by roughly 100% give or take. Apart from the morality of valuing private profit over life, but then they do that by the day. It's just that a pandemic highlights the equation. However, I raise Matt's major contribution to literature and logic because I'm sure you have mistakenly concluded Matt's motivation in arguing for no lockdowns, just learn to die with the virus, was to defend the rights of the caring business class and the great resource behemoths. Well, you couldn't have been more wrong. Well, we couldn't, because I made the same mistake. See, Matt said the lockdown and its massive costs, 330 mil for each life saved, badly affected the poor. And he was the great defender of the poorest of the poor. Like his 330 mil figure, he didn't quite explain the logic of that one either, but what a champion of the down and out. Who, if Matt gets his way, will soon be down and out, disposed of in a pauper's grave. We now look forward to Matt's treatise on this UN of the US of the UN of the World Panel on Climate Change report predicting dire consequences for the planet, given that Matt at least concedes that COVID exists, whereas he knows climate change does not exist. But I'm sure he can give us an accurately assessed figure on what it would cost to save every life of every creature on Earth from something that isn't happening. And the good news is it doesn't matter because we're going to exceed our target anyway. Big Supremo scuttled them more or less son, a.k.a. Scamo, told us so. We are leading the world. We will meet and exceed our target. Uh, but, but you haven't got a target. And we will meet and exceed it. Scomo's deputy big supremo and Matt's hayseed and sheepshit party supremo barnacle, it's just giant mind after giant mind, isn't it, said we couldn't rush into reacting to the UNOB report without knowing the costs of acting to prevent that which is not happening anyway. And when asked what would be the costs of not acting, Barnacle said that was a trick question, presumably because he couldn't think of a tricky enough answer, but people had to come up with answers that wouldn't cost, and when asked, wasn't it the business of government to come up with answers, Michael said, no, no, it was up to the CSIRO and scientists to come up with the answer. Not sure who he thought wrote the intergovernmental report, but anyway, given the government's and Barnacle's much publicised acceptance of the science, can we just spot the odd flaw in Barnacle's argument? So you now believe in the science. Depends. On what? On what they, you know, like say. It's almost certain they'll say we must eliminate fossils. Then that would be like a matter for government to, you know, decide. But you just said it was up to the CSIRO and scientists. Only if they know what they're, you know, talking about. And up to date, like, they haven't got a, like, clue. Well, at least the old barnacle fronted up for the interview, whereas the minister responsible for championing the fossils, Angus Tailings, ignored the responsible bit and was unavailable. Apparently on the day the scathing report on matters for which he is responsible was released, Angus didn't think it was any of his business to respond, leaving us to ponder what he thinks he gets paid for. 
ditto the Minister for Environmental Obfuscation, Susan Lees and Dregs, who headed across the world a couple of weeks ago to convince the World Heritage Council not to declare the endangered, not-so-great-anymore barrier reef from being declared endangered. Describing her success as a great day for True Blue Aussie, even if it was not so great a day for the poor bloody reef. And we know some admirable young people took her to the federal court, which ruled she had a duty of care to protect them from the ravages of climate change, if there is such a thing. And now she is appealing that decision on our behalf using public funds, declaring she has no duty of care to protect future generations against a threat to the future of the planet, leaving us to ponder again what she thinks she gets paid for, other than to deny there are any threats to the environment. Well, when climate change is discussed, the response comes from Angus, the Minister for Fossils and Scuttle Them, who knows that if the dear baby Jesus made all those fossils, then they must be good for us, and and good for the great resource corporations, and therefore even more good for all of us. So obviously, the environment portfolio has nothing to do with climate change, if there is the environment obfuscation portfolio. That may be her defence. They sued the wrong minister. The environment has nothing to do with the environment, with climate change if there is. Thankfully, the Socialist Party has a policy to develop a policy sometime before the end of the planet. Its spokesperson, Chris Bowen, the capital, attacking the government for not having a policy, but announcing the Socialist Party does not need to have a policy, which exacerbates the government's lack of policy. We can't announce a policy until the government finally announces a policy, Chris explained. Uh, why not? Uh, because we don't know what we have to agree with. We, we can't risk announcing a policy the government could attack us over. Troubler was his biggest polluter, A.G. Held to the Planet Supremo Graham Hunt for Profits, pointed out sensibly that coal will be needed for many years to come and even more sensibly in his hunt for profits advocated that the national electricity market could provide payments for coal and gas plants beyond the power they produce. What a brilliant response to the UNOV report. More government corporate welfare for fossils. At least we've got to admire their audacity. We also laid odds last week after U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world train killers in Darwin were allowed to be slapped over the wrist by the U.S. of legal system for crimes committed against true blue Aussie law in true blue Aussie, rape, assault. Odds that our laser-like legal mind attorney General Macalia Koch, the workers, would demand the U.S. of return the favour by releasing Julian Assange immediately. As it turned out, Michaela, surprisingly, didn't order the US OB to release Julian, while the US OB turned up in a London court to inform the bench it, had, it the bench had been misled by an expert psychiatric report in refusing extradition based on nothing more than the expert psychiatric report. The US OB insists the court must reject this expert fallacy and accept the expert opinion of the US OB that the accused is guilty of exposing US of war crimes, which everyone knows are not war crimes, but actions essential to the US of fulfilling its God-given role as the upholder of world peace. God bless America. 
And of course, apart from the minor fact that there is no plea of not guilty allowed for the crimes he is charged with, exposing US of war crimes, he would naturally receive a fair trial. He would naturally get two life sentences plus 75 years just to make a good thing of it. And back here, our very own number one train killer, Angus Camp, for whom the bell tolls, announced an internal inquiry, that should sort it out, into serious failings uncovered by the report into true blue Aussie war crimes in Afghanistan, and hasn't the coalition of the killing invasion worked a treat? Serious failings, Angus. Uh, yes, we must make sure that in the future, these matters never see the light of day. Finally, the sundry inquiries uncovering the proof of what we knew anyway of the criminality down at Jamie Puker's Crook Casinos, Jamie and Crook Chairperson Helen Conlem say they should be allowed to retain their interests in the private mint and their reputations. Well, let's relieve them of that worry. Let's assure them, Helen, Jamie, your reputations are guaranteed. Good afternoon. Mr. Kevin Healy and more of Kevin tomorrow morning at nine o'clock with City Limits. City, City Limits. Limits, brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City limits. limits. armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Banned School to learn more and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash bandschool. That's icanw.org.au forward slash bandschool. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6pm Tuesdays. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. Today we revisit the important ecological issue of the threat of deep sea mining.
with the deep sea mining industry, peddling a number of arguments that simply don't add up. One, deep sea mining is essential to provide the metals needed for a clean energy future. Two, the environmental impacts of deep sea mining are minimal compared to terrestrial mines. Three, economic and social benefits will accrue to small island states that participate in deep sea mining. And the list goes on. The first proposal was by Nautilus Minerals trying to develop a deep sea gold, copper and silver project off the coast of PNG. Local and international opposition was a major factor in the company becoming officially bankrupt in November 2019. In the process leaving the PNG government facing a debt equivalent to a third of the country's annual health budget. But others are looking to take up the challenge. While the deep sea mining campaign here in Australia and others overseas are continuing their opposition and highlighting the likely consequences of deep sea mining. Dr Helen Rosenbaum is the co-coordinator of the deep sea mining campaign and when we spoke recently I asked her first about Nautilus and the years that they and others were fighting Nautilus. It looks like we've stopped fighting Nautilus because they're just about to become deregistered as a company or they've applied for deregistration. But um, we continue to fight in Papua New Guinea with our partners there because the, we don't know what's happened to the licences that were issued to Nautilus. Yeah, Nautilus was the first company and still is the only company that has been awarded contracts and licences to mine in the hydrothermal vents in the deep sea. So hydrothermal vents are one of the three types of substrates or mineral environments that the uh, companies are, have got their eye on. So hydrothermal vents have large deposits of sulfitic minerals that have kind of been spewed out of these vents that are like mini geysers over thousands and tens of thousands of years. So there's this huge build-up around the hydrothermal vents, metres high of these mineral deposits. So there was one such vent field in um, Papua New Guinea that caught Nautilus's interests, a Canadian registered company. And so for a good 15 years, or possibly even more, they had been researching conducting baseline studies of the marine environment down there, trying to develop equipment that we were never you know, entirely sure that they actually really developed. Um, there were photos of these giant, brutal-looking machines that just looked like they were going to wreak havoc on any environment, these huge rollers with massive teeth <laughs> sticking out of them that they were you know, planning to pummel these hydrothermal vents with. They had lots of photos of those kinds of things online, which just dwarfed people. Like, you know, a person would just come up to the height of, um, of a wheel on one of these things. But even uh, we heard through colleagues in Europe that parliamentarians in Germany were joking about whether this was just photoshopped or, or not, these machines, which is something our campaign has um, often wondered as well. But they've never been deployed. If they do exist in some form, they'd be rusting hulks somewhere or other by now. 
the community. We worked with communities um, on the ground. We worked with the churches, um, the churches in Papua New Guinea, and indeed all through the Pacific, have been very vocal against deep sea mining. Certain um, parliamentarians, national government parliamentarians in Papua New Guinea, have have also been voicing concern and objecting to deep sea mining. Questions were asked in Parliament uh, various times. Community members have instituted legal proceedings trying to gain access to information that allowed the Papua New Guinea government to licence Nautilus because there was no Freedom of Information Act in Papua New Guinea. So trying to gain such information required this this legal action, which is still ongoing. The Mineral Resources Authority, which is the authority that actually administers licences and the contracts to mining companies, tried to block this court uh, action for over two years, just delaying it through you know various tactics, putting in appeals and um, and slowing down the process. And it was only early... Uh, this year that a judge actually finally delivered the verdict that the the case could go ahead and the Mineral Resource Authority was was foiled in its attempt to block it. You know, it raises the whole question about accountability of government departments and politicians in Papua New Guinea and um, the fact that this government department was not working in the interests of the communities of its nation and just most recently so there's been you know very active community protests in different ways um, there's been uh, exploration licenses that um, we only found out through the back door really that um, Nautilus had submitted an application for the extension and renewal of exploration licenses elsewhere in um, the Bismarck Sea. So this is an addition to the the prospect that they had mining license for, and communities really organised um, mainly through our partner in Papua New Guinea, the Alliance of Solwara Warriors. Uh, Solwara being the pigeon term for salt water. They coordinated uh, objections from the communities to be lodged with the Mineral Resources Authority. The Mineral Resources Authority held consultations in these quite remote villages uh, that went over several days and they heard very clearly the views and the concerns of the villagers there that are quite close to these various um, exploration licences that the extensions are being sought for. But we've never heard the outcome of any of those deliberations It would seem that the Mineral Resources Authority's response to these kinds of community actions is to close its doors even more to civil society. Its website uh, no longer is able to be accessed by uh, just normal citizens uh, for information around the licensing of companies, which used to be publicly accessible to anyone who wanted to uh, see the status of various licenses held by mining companies in Papua New Guinea. Most recently, just in the last couple of weeks, the Alliance of Solwara Warriors 
held a shark calling festival in New Ireland province. Uh, so New Ireland province is the province closest to the Solwara One mine that Nautilus holds the mining licence for, held once it's dissolved as an entity. Well, this festival had been in planning for many years because due to the exploration activities and pre-mining activities of Nautilus, the, the local villagers noticed that they weren't able to call up sharks anymore. And shark calling is a really intrinsic part of their culture around, there's a whole ritual around going out to, it's quite a spiritual ritual about uh, connecting with the ocean and, and the sharks and in the ocean. And the men that when they go out to do that, and it is, is men who are the shark callers, uh, they actually have to work themselves up and, to, and prepare to do it and they uh, in quite a trance-like state. More than just a spiritual ritual, it also brings in sustenance, sustenance in terms of the, the sharks that they catch. There's a whole also, uh, ceremony around the, the shark calling that divides up the food in the in the communities. It also serves this community cohesion um, function as well as feeding the community and connects everybody in that community to to the ocean really strongly. But they weren't able to hold shark calling rituals because they felt that the sharks were being disturbed by the various activities going on around the mine site. Although mining hadn't started, there were various testings. The late exploration phase of deep sea mining is very much like deep sea mining itself. It's on, in, a, in a small scale. So um, that ritual had stopped. But then with the closing down of the operations of Nautilus, they were able to start this ritual up again. And the communities in New Island province, which uh, the the sort of centre of this ritual decided that they wanted to hold a shark calling festival to just remind everybody of their strong connection to the ocean and their culture. Also, as a vehicle for people, again, being able to raise their objections and concerns about deep-sea mining, the, the festival itself had that sort of dual purpose and was uh, well attended by communities all over New Island province, even though the, the village that this was in is, is a fairly remote village. Uh, people bust in from all over the province and even from other provinces too. And uh, it was a festival that was held in conjunction with um, the Catholic Church in, in New Island province. Um, received quite wide um, media attention both in PNG and even on our own ABC. And of course the catch is sustainable, isn't it? Well, it's because of the the way in which the preparations have to be done. It's not something that's done on a daily basis or anything like that and it's also um, seasonal. So it um, only occurs at certain times of the year and um, not that frequently during during those times. Over the years that this tradition has been conducted for, they um, they haven't um, noticed a decline in sharks. That only occurred with um, with nautilus uh, minerals activities in the area. 
Well, the concern now is what's going to happen to the licences. Because of the lack of transparency, which is one of the reasons the communities instigated this legal action, was to try and gain some transparency over the decision-making processes around the licences. We don't really know what the status of the licences are now. There's still a parent company um, that exists that's called Deep Sea Mining Finance. It's the parent company of Nautilus New Guinea. So it's Nautilus New Guinea that has applied to be deregistered. And it's not clear to us what that means to the Deep Sea Mining Finance Corporation, whether they own the licences or whether they've already sold those licences to another entity. One spectre that we all fear is company has, has bought those licences, as has happened throughout the Pacific in other areas and um, in Papua New Guinea. Chinese companies have been very adept at picking up um, mining companies and their uh, exploration and mining licences at bargain basement prices when the companies haven't been able to make a go of it. If that were to, call, uh, to occur with uh, the Nautilus licences, they may choose to sit on the licences for a while or they may continue to develop the mine that Nautilus couldn't get funding um, and finance to, to develop. And as much as we dislike Nautilus, I think... Chinese company is likely to be less cognizant and responsive to the concerns of of local people. We've got other examples, not very far away, for example, the Ramu Nickel Mine in Madang Province, which is owned by a Chinese entity, which is a deep-sea tailings placement method of um, mine waste disposal. So it has some similarities to some of the impacts that deep sea mining would have because it's basically discharging its waste very deep, well, a couple of hundred metres deep into what they describe as a trench. But, of course, the waste hasn't stayed there like their um, project proposal suggested and there have been fish kills and discoloration and pollution of the waters of the Bassamuck Bay that um, the mine waste is discharged into. I guess people have got that in their minds as a possible prospect for the Solwara One mine. So we're not quite rejoicing yet. <laughs> in, yes, and our uh, partners in Papua New Guinea, mainly the Alliance of Solwara Warriors and the churches, are still uh, lobbying hard to try and achieve the cancellation by the government of the licences. That's their constant call on the government now. Is there any timeline on that when they have to be cancelled or acted upon? There is cycles of renewal um, that the the licences have to be renewed after a certain period. And we used to be able to track that through the website of the Mineral Resource Authority and perhaps uh, there would be some contract conditions around the Nautilus mining licence that we're not privy to as well because, of course, those cons aren't, aren't in the public arena. So we're not 100% 
clear on you know where those intervention points might be in terms of the cycle of extinctions and renewals. Well, this brings us to the next cab off the rank, and that's deep green metals. Any connections with Nautilus? <laughs> yes, the two key founders of deep green metals were actually early investors in Nautilus minerals. And one of them, is a, in particular, is a very interesting character. His name's Jared Barron, and he has a marketing background and, and also a history of being associated with other companies that have gone belly up financially. He was very um, clever about the way in which he talked up the prospects of Nautilus managed to persuade some large investors and some small many small investors to put their money in in the company over time several of those investors left the company including um the only large mainstream mining company anglo-american decided it wasn't uh, well we managed to help them decide that it wasn't um, a good idea for them to have an association with this particular company but before the fortunes of the company totally went downhill, Jared Barron and David Hayden left the company and they, they established Deep Green. They left being able to sell their share prices at um, a very handsome price. And, you know, personally, they had quite enhanced wealth when they left. We're not entirely sure whether Deep Green as a company is not going to go the same way as Nautilus in that it could be Jared Barron and the other directors that are on board of uh, Nautilus could be their game plan to do the same kind of thing, ramp up the share prices and leave as quickly as possible before their very shonky business plan is exposed to investors and the general public. But isn't there plans for a merger? They're in the process of... Um, trying to float their company publicly and the new co entity that would be formed is um, something they would call the metals company. They're planning to do this, they've already initiated the process by combining with another company that's already a public uh, company. There's a whole new breed of companies, they're called SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition Companies they were a form of company that was allowed under the United States Securities Exchange Commission as a way to incentivise people to develop good ideas and to um, commercialise and operationalise in a new technologies. And the way they incentivised that was by offering these companies more relaxed financial regulations than a regular company would have to go through when they float their companies publicly. But what's happened is that many people have taken advantage of those relaxed regulations to do some fairly dubious things with these companies. And it's offered companies like Deep Green a, uh, a way to go public without all the scrutiny and um, the hoops they would have to jump through were they just going to go through an, an initial public offering, an IPO process as per regular companies. 
this uh, deep green and uh, found a, a SPAC to merge with. It's called Sustainable Opportunities Acquisition Corporation. It has um, billed itself to its investors as a SPAC that's going to only engage in environmentally uh, sustainable enterprises. So what happens is investors put their money into this SPAC, or um, this is the way in which SPACs work, that investors put a whole lot of money in. And we're talking like hundreds of millions of dollars, which is quite scary to think people have that level of disposable income to experiment with, because they put these money into the, the SPAC without knowing what the SPAC is going to invest in at that point. And the SPAC has a certain time frame in which they need to propose their investment to their shareholders for approval at a special meeting. At that point, the shareholders can either vote to endorse the investment decision or request to or vote against it and request to redeem their, their initial investment. So SOAC has managed to uh, convince a lot of investors to put significant money into it and uh, it's got till November present investors with a proposition. Otherwise, it has to also give um, all the money back and it hasn't um, presented an acceptable option to their investors by November. So it's running through a bit of a timeline. We've actually put out a document, uh, we call it a shareholder advisory, by which we've gone through with a fine-tooth comb the prospectus that SOAC have had to lodge with the Securities Exchange Commission. So one advantage, one huge advantage of this whole process for us is that all this documentation becomes public. Previously, we weren't able to obtain any serious level of information about Deep Green and its business plan uh, or any of the details around its its business strategy because it was a private company and they had no obligation to divulge any of those things. But now that it's going public, it has to put out in quite some detail um, all this information, including information on risks, uh, financial risks, social risks, environmental risks. We had a field day going through this document critiquing uh, the lack of disclosure in that document about all the risks and also the misrepresentation by SOAC to its investors of the uh, enterprise they were going to present investors with uh, as being environmentally sustainable. So we detailed this in our shareholder advisory and we've sent that to all the shareholders, which um, we were able to access a database of shareholders. And we've also written letters to the Security Exchange Commission and the New York Stock Exchange um, on which uh, SOAC had indicated they were going to, to float this new entity, the um, metals company. So what we've seen over the last couple of months, we think it's probably in, in response to our shareholder advisory and also the letters we've written and some other organisations have now written letters to the SEC and the New York Stock Exchange that we force 
deep green and so at to come cleaner, not completely clean, but to revise their perspectives to, to quite a significant extent, where now they are actually admitting the significant environmental impacts they are likely to have on biodiversity and, and the deep sea, also in the ocean in general. They even mention um, the word connectivity, <laughs> so uh, which is, you know, is vital in the ocean because the connectivity of the ocean means that something that happens in one part of the ocean is going to affect creatures and humans and water in you know other parts of the ocean quite dis- distant. So they're actually admitting to a large extent now the impacts they're likely to have. They've admitted that there are no mitigation strategies that are likely to reduce those impacts. Quite significantly, they also now admit that they can't guarantee that deep sea mining will be less environmentally damaging than land-based mining. That's a huge concession for Deep Green because they have expended considerable resources, time and effort in trying to spin the opposite line to present deep sea mining as being far more uh, sustainable and less impactful than land-based mining. Huge concessions on those aspects. These new revised um, paragraphs are... They're buried within a 600-page mm. document. Most people won't, won't notice those revisions, but that's what our job is, to make sure people do notice those revisions that media and journalists are very... And particularly the journalists that specialise in the finance sector you know, become very aware of those things. So it sounds as though you've got a bit more work to do before November. Yes, <laughs> we think so. We're waiting to find out the date of the special meeting that vote that shareholders will be called to to vote on whether they want to approve Deep Green as the enterprise for their investments or whether they want to redeem their funds. At the moment, we're working quite hard to make sure we're staying in touch with shareholders, keep them informed of of any new information that that would affect their material concerns, as they're called, so um, their uh, financial risk and, and stake in such an investment. Yes, we're constantly busy. Seems to be there's a message out there for other companies who might like to follow on. Well, in terms of SPACs in general, um, regardless of the kind of enterprise they're involved with, the Security Exchange Commission has woken up um, quite alert now to the way in which the regulatory context that they developed for SPACs has been uh, exploited. They're starting to clamp down on them, which has created an, uh, an opening for us to raise our concerns because the chairperson of the Securities Exchange Commission has come out publicly stating a strong commitment to clamp down on the companies that are not doing the right thing 
And they've even taken out uh, a legal action against one particular company that we believe has probably acted in a way similar to, to Deep Green in terms of misrepresentation of the enterprise they're engaging in. We've just written yesterday to the SEC again, reinforcing our concerns about uh, misrepresentation by SOAC to its investors, suggesting that this particular merger receives a similar level of attention as the case that they've taken out against the personnel and the, and the companies involved in this other SPAC. I think that case is, is going to send a serious message to, to other SPACs and hopefully the investors in SOAC who we presume invested in that company because they did want to be putting their money to what's called the ESG sector, the environmental and social governance sort of positive um, finance sector. We hope our message comes through to them and um, we'll be watching to find out when their voting meeting is so we can participate as well. We've bought a share in SOAT just so that we can. I was speaking with Dr Helen Rosenbaum, co-coordinator of the Deep Sea Mining Campaign and I'll be keeping in touch with Helen in the months leading up to that vote in November this year. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Love come your way What can I say You feel the hell You change your way Hi, we're from Raybrook College and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. I spoke at the weekend with retired 
solicitor Max Costello, and we focused on four-year-old Tamil girl Thandika Mirakapan awaiting a decision on the level of health care she received on Christmas Island. But the family's quest for asylum went to the High Court last week. The High Court decided not to hear the case. I heard an excellent explanation by Simone Cameron, who's a, a part of the Back to Bilo team. She used to live there, although she's not qualified as a lawyer yet. She has quite a good understanding of um, migration law and so on. And so she gave an excellent account speaking on the um, Capitol Hill, I think, um, ABC 24 show. She said, yes, they've refu- refused to hear it on the grounds that Tharnika's claim had to be based on the situation at the time. And so the, the court was just considering back then, did she have a claim to be remaining in Australia? On the papers, as it were, the answer was no. So the, the, the High Court wasn't looking at a rehearing. It was just deciding was the um, refusal back then legally correct, and they said it, it was. And as as Simone Cameron explained, that going to the High Court was a bit of a long shot. They didn't have high hopes, but, uh, you know, you've got to try what you can. But interestingly, she also mentioned other processes that are on foot. Well, one of them is with the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. That tribunal is considering the fact that the finding uh, by the Federal Court of Australia uh, that she was denied natural justice in the process that had been commenced. That matter, whether whether she was denied natural justice is and what can be done now is with the Ministry of Appeals Tribunal and that is coming up, I think, in a few months' time, potentially. The third thing, and I hadn't known this at all, was that somehow the two girls were made citizens of Sri Lanka. Apologise here, I don't know before which uh, body, but the legal advice is that that purported awarding of, of citizen status was not properly done, was not legitimate, I could put it in those words. And so that is also uh, another matter. Then Simone went on to say, and I think it's relevant if you don't mind, I'll, I'll raise this. Well, what, if anything, could Immigration Minister Hawke be doing in, in the meantime? He, he has said he's going to await the outcome of these various uh, proceedings before he makes any decision in relation to the family. She said, and this is a must be a very important point, that the minister has total discretion, total power, if he so wishes, to grant uh, or arrange the granting, the issuing of a short-term visa to Farnica. He doesn't have to wait for any court or other processes. Totally personal discretion. She stressed that point. He could, by if he took that decision and uh, she was given the same short-term visa, or perhaps a longer one, than the rest of the family, then they could be moved back to Bilawila to await these uh, proceedings if, if that's required. It's not as if 
the minister's hands are tied and, and he has to await other proceedings. Not at all. That's about um, where the land lies. And, of course, the, uh, the back to Bilo, the, the, the community and Angela Fredericks and others are pushing for Minister Hawke to exercise his discretion. Because the, the three-month visa they've got runs out, I think, on the 22nd of September. So time is uh, pressing. When we last spoke, you expressed concern that where the government had put them in their temporary accommodation was right near the airport. So it looks like if this is going to go on for quite a while, the plane back to Sri Lanka is off the um, agenda for the moment. Since Mr Hawke, Minister Hawke has insisted unnecessarily and misleadingly that uh, he has to await uh, or he will await uh, external proceedings, it would be an extraordinary event if the family were to be put on a plane back to Sri Lanka while those were proceedings were on foot. I think if Minister Hawke sticks to his guns, so to speak, it would look as if there's a delay in the possible transfer to uh, deportation of Sri Lanka until those processes are concluded. Yes, I think that's a logical, uh, logically correct, Jan. The case of Thanika serves to highlight the concerns of yourself and many others that the detainees, whether they're onshore or offshore, one important aspect of the federal government is that they're offloading the health care to the states and the states are already under great stress, the hospitals and the health care, but by leaving these people right to the last moment to give them proper care, they're putting their lives in danger, but they're also offloading the, the cost to y the states. Yes, uh, absolutely. And the context here, in a way, the apparent gross health neglect of uh, little Varnica so that she had to be put on an emergency air ambulance flight to Perth is a tiny little microcosm of the standard of healthcare in detention across the board. And it so happens that her individual case, of course, was there was a rescue, if you like, of taking her to Perth. By the way, Simone Cameron mentioned that, that the whole family had been receiving help or care as outpatients of the Perth Children's Hospital, or I, I suppose the parents would be going to another hospital, I'm just guessing there. But the point being that the fact that that's happening means that there are doctors who presumably can see, and again, I'm not on Medico, can see that this family, having been traumatised for so long, would need ongoing medical care. And uh, while they're in attention, that's the responsibility of the Commonwealth through Home Affairs. But going back to your question about healthcare neglect generally, yes, what's happening is to take one group, the, the group that were transferred from either Papua New Guinea or Nauru to Australia under the so-called Medicare, Medivac amendments, the Migration Act, that they, they came into force early 2019 and the government managed to uh, have them repealed in like, December 2000. But while they were there, quite, a, I don't know, several hundred, I'm thinking, people who were detainees or mainly ex-detainees on Manus and Nauru 
were flown here. And the wording in the Migration Act is, for as amended, quote, for the purpose of medical or psychiatric assessment or treatment, unquote. So they were brought here for that purpose. But the Morrison government has, by and large, determined that that purpose will be stymied. So very few of the mainly men have actually received that specialist assessment or or care. And as a result, and, and of course they weren't, unlike the predecessors who got a federal court order to fly them here for highly specified care and, and even naming in some cases the, the uh, care into the, the hospital or other care institution to which they had to be taken. So those pre-Medivac people were actually provided with care and in the meantime they were, they were housed in uh, the community, in, in community detention, whereas the Medivac cohort by, have by and large not received the care they were flown here for and they've been held in formal detention, a, a few of them in immigration detention facilities proper like the real hardcore places if you like, but nearly all of them in hotel APODs, as they're called, alternative places of detention. Drip by drip, some of them have been released. They have to fend for themselves. They're not getting health care. But the ones who are still in detention, either in a hotel APOD, one family, adult family in Darwin, in that situation. There are men in a hotel in Melbourne, the, so the Park Hotel and other, others around the country. Now, that's eight years they've been confined one form or another in one place or another, and it's just has taken a, a terrible toll on their physical and psychiatric health. To get to your point about dumping them on state and territory hospitals, what's happened is, for example, at, at the at MITRE, Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation, men are on there have held several hunger strikes just in a desperate attempt to try to win their freedom. When they get sicker and sicker, they've been taken, some of them, to the local hospital, the northern hospital, and taken to the emergency section, often at night. This has been happening, whether it's a hunger strike or just you know, serious health concerns. They've been taken, and this is true around Australia, they've been taken to hospitals when they get really, really sick. And so you're right, the state hospital systems are cleaning up the mess, as it were, of uh, Commonwealth neglect. And now we have one refugee, Cave. Yes, K-A-V-E-H. What do you know about his situation? I'm going by the report on SBS News a few days ago, and I think the Guardian Australia had a similar account in that case and his lawyer Alison Batterson who's a remarkable uh, a remarkably effective and determined legal representative she's quoted as saying that um, the eight years has just caught up with him having been on a, a hunger strike he is now damaged so that he really has trouble eating at all I'll quote from the SBS article Carve is being treated for for gastrointestinal issues with his body struggling to tolerate food after he took part in a month-long hunger strike protesting for his release, said uh, Alison Batterson. She has... Um
taken a remarkable initiative. She, in, on the 22nd of July, the article goes on, she wrote to the United Nations and the Office of the Human Rights Commissioner responded the following day saying it would consider she sought an appeal to the UN body and has asked uh, the UN body to take steps to see if he can be placed in community detention as an interim measure. Batterson goes on to say the UN's prompt response, quote, speaks to the severity of Carnegie's case and concerns for his well-being. And she goes on, quote, the UN has recognised the severity of this situation. She told SBS News, this demonstrates that there are serious concerns about his life. The longer these people, mainly men, are kept in detention, there's eight years and counting, the, the more likely serious, drastic physical and psychiatric uh, ill health is going to present itself. This is an extreme case. It's only the one at this point. But logically, these cases are going to, if they're kept in detention, these sort of events are going to occur again. A bit worrying, though, that the consideration of that Human Rights Committee the decision won't be until next year. That'll be too late. I'm not sure. You, I'm out of my depth here. I'm not sure whether any any part of that committee can make uh, provision or interim uh, findings. You're, you're right. From a political uh, perspective, I would think the fact that, that the UN has responded promptly and expressed concern is something that Alison Batterson is hoping will embarrass uh, who expose the government into taking some action. The thing is that they are releasing from time to time. They've done this over the last 12 months. Dutton says it's because it's cheaper. They've been releasing these long-term detainees, one or two at a time here and there. There's no pattern. There's no explanation. And so, of course, the people who are still left behind, like that sole family in Darwin, are just... At their wits end, why aren't we being released? I mean, it's not as if they're in, you know, fine fettle just having been put in COVID hotel quarantine for a fortnight or something and they're, you know, really well and healthy and, uh, or well, you know, they're, they're, their lives are generally stable. These people are enormously distressed and in very poor health generally and, uh, for them to be told nothing about whether and if so when they'll be released is just uh, sort of turning the screws, really. I can just refer back to the first lot of people who were taken to Nauru and it got to the stage where there was only one man left, one man and his cat, and he was finally released. But that young man now who's probably in his late 30s has been in and out of trouble since because of the, the treatment that he got there and how it yeah, impacted uh, on yeah. his life. Uh, yeah, at some stage there really needs to be a Royal Commission into into all this, both offshore and onshore, really. And, and there's a further point, Jan, and you've perhaps hinted at it, on putting, putting demands on the state and territory hospitals. There's also the point that when they're released, um, some of them, they get, a, I think, a couple of weeks of uh, financial support, and that's it. Some of them have been in those hotel airports with other people who've been living for years in community detention with some sort of minimal financial support and, of course, a roof over their heads. 
and they're just released. That's it. Look after yourselves. So it's not only the, the state and territory hospitals that are being burdened, it's, it's a charity organisations, it's, it's the refugee advocate community, if I could call it that, who visited these people and tried to nurture them and help them. How are they going to live? Now, some of them have got work rights, but when you've been unemployed for eight years, you're on a visa that lasts six months at a time. How are you going to persuade an employer unless that person is just a good-hearted person trying to look after people in distress? How are you going to get an employer to take on those people? The government knows that work rights, although they're legitimate and important, there's no guarantee that they'll get work and and they're not entitled to um, New Start. There are people who, as a result of government inaction and or action in this case of just releasing them with little or no support or nowhere to live this is just unbelievable it's a psychopathic policy implementation really it's just and we have a prime minister who who parades his um, religious or ethical beliefs and commitments well (laughs) yes i'll say no more on that i think there's a wider point here um on this, this cohort, or there could be others, I don't know the full story about who's entitled to what social security benefits, but with wages frozen and, and the new start and uh, some other, you know, being frozen, it hasn't increased except marginally, I think, uh, for the last 25 years. The government is creating uh, an increasing underclass, a bit like the US uh, model, and this is of... Um, of great concern. Another issue that you've pointed to is that what many people say or feel that it's a deliberate policy of the government to destroy these people and then let them out. And you've identified four ways that play on people's minds and just just destroy them. Yes, well, going back to the uh, Nauru and Manus, people, people were sent offshore, and you know, this is going back 10 10 or so years ago, and they were given a so-called boat number. I've checked with this. Prisoners in ordinary jails in Australia, they're referred to by their name. They might be just called by the surname or or so on. Uh, But the um, instruction throughout the Home Affairs Department, which is now called Home Affairs Department, is that detainees that tried to come here by boat without a visa... They are to be referred to in writing as well as speech only by their boat number. I think the first three is like A, B, C, one, two, three. The first, the the letters of the alphabet are derived from the name of the boat they try to come here on and then they let the numbers are you know, just to each individual. And that still happens here now in Australia. And, you know, correspondence is addressed to number, you know, A, B, C, one, two, three. Uh, even within the uh, public service. That just takes away their identity and their their dignity. So that's one way, you know, deliberate policy, despite the fact that they have a duty under the Health and Safety Act to proactively and preventively look after both their psychological and their physical health. The second one is, now that they're here in Australia, if they have to go to a medical appointment, they're handcuffed. So then they are sitting in the waiting room with other patients and they're made to look like dangerous prisoners. 
The third is the uh, extraordinary level of forced transfers around Australia. There's been an article published in The Conversation. Uh, it's derived from an academic article. This researcher from the uh, University of Queensland, Ms. Wetz, her name is uh, Michelle Pateri, P-E-T-E-R-I-E. And she did research, got the official figures. Between July 2017 and May 2019, there were 8,000 involuntary movements, that's air flights, within the uh, detention system. And that was when there were only a few hundred or several hundred refugees and asylum seekers in total, you know, hundreds. She quotes a figure of 504 in December 2019. So 8,000 airlifts. And the cost between July 2018 and August 2019 was $6.1 million. Pateri conducted 70 interviews over five years with regular visitors to the detention facilities and she quotes two comments which tell you the psychological damage, that the, the risks they're put to. Quote, it was always early in the morning. I get 10 minutes to pack, pack your bags and things would be lost. It was such a hurry. It was made to be traumatic for them. And it was also so upsetting, quoting, for all the other refugees. They seen people get hauled off. And they never know if it's going to be you next morning. As to handcuffing, that they were handcuffed during the flights. Terry quotes the Australian Human Rights Commission, this is a couple of years ago, he documented what it called the excessive, unquote, use of restraints during transfers. And then not long before her 2000 article was, came, went to print, the Commonwealth Ombudsman observed that handcuffs had become, quote, accepted transfer practice during transport operations and the fourth one is to tie up with the with the fact that people who don't have a visa who don't get entitled or not entitled to protection and come from a country where they to which they can't be returned can't be deported because that would be resettlement under the um, refugees convention the high court via the high recent high court decision and amendments to migration act both those things have reinforced the official legality of potentially keeping those people in immigration detention for the rest of their lives. What we're seeing with Alison Batterson's clients after, what, 20, 30, 40 years in detention, it doesn't take much imagination to realise that those people are going to be destroyed, really. I mean, unlike, you know, ordinary they have a release date unless they're the tiny handful of the time they're going to charge the life. At least they know they have some sort of potential future. The dangers to health, psychological health, the first three, and perhaps total health in the last case. And this is all deliberate government policy. You just wonder, or maybe you, we don't wonder, how Australia looks to the rest of the world, not only on this issue, but you talk about climate change and you can add all these others, that, you know, we used to be a compassionate country, but that seems to have gone with the governments that we've had recently. I think you're absolutely right. You might have noticed that in recent months, perhaps for a year or so now, people who you wouldn't think are necessarily political, like Alan Kohler, who presents the... Um, 
the finance report on ABC Television News. He's now writing under his own banner, if you like, and he's scathing about the lack of quality governance. Hugh Mackay, long-time social affairs commentator, has, has said we, we seem to have lost our moral compass in the, the way we're being governed federally at the moment. There is no, almost no admitting to mistakes. There is an occasional cursory sort of apology to the sort of victims of robo-debt, for example. It's uh, a very deep concern. It goes, as you say, beyond the refugee asylum seekers issues. It's um, broader and deeper and very, very concerning. And I, I think, um, although the average Joe and Mary mightn't sort of take note of these things, I think it's beginning to buy it. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more from Max Costello in the near future. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt, or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Kafias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au that's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S dot A 3CR supporter.
There's no doubt that governments in Australia continue to limit our civil liberties and freedoms, whether it be attending demonstrations or giving increasing access to our daily lives through Centrelink, ATO, etc. But one area that is causing increasing concern is the expansion of the cashless debit card system, purportedly to support people, families and communities in places where high levels of welfare dependency coexist with high levels of social harm. But as I said, more and more people are saying no to the cashless welfare card and I'm speaking with Catherine Wilkes from the group No Cashless Debit Card Australia. Catherine, before we talk about the present campaign against the extension of this card, when and why was it introduced in the first place? Back in uh, 2014, there was a report put together by Twiggy Forest and given to the Abbott government in regards to the Creating Parity uh, report, which was re- what was used as a recommendation for the cashless welfare card to be introduced into Seduna as a trial. So it was Twiggy Forest's recommendation. They set up the company to do it, was Indu. That was previously Larry Anthony from the Nationals was the previous CEO up until 2013 of Indu. He then stepped down once Indu had been chosen as the provider for the Indu cashless debit card. So that's where it got started there. Basically, it's uh, a rehash of the basics card, but as you'll see, we described it in the Senate, it was basics card on steroids. What does Twiggy Forrest got to do with it? Well, it was part of the creating parity report was his recommendations in regards to First Nations peoples and and around the social harms in their communities and stuff like that. So he was um, the person that came up with the idea. So it started in 2016 in Seduna and Kununurra and originally they were lied to. They were told that it would only be for people on what is now JobSeeker, Newstar, and it would be targeted. This is what people in Seduna were told, okay? And when it actually rolled out, it rolled out to everybody between the age of 17 and 67, including disability support pensioners, carers, every payment, every age. So they weren't happy about that at all because it was just a blanket rollout. In like the East Kimberley and Kununurra, Wyndham region, at that stage, it was 98% First Nations people. It rolled out to straight away. So you can see there's a racist element to it. In the regions that they introduced it to is primarily First Nations people are dominant. And then it got extended. They went looking for other trial sites. They tried Geraldton, but they couldn't get it in there. They tried other places. They tried Moree twice, got knocked back for Moree twice. Their community stood up and said no. And they couldn't get in a third trial site anywhere. And then in 2018, they got Kalgoorlie. So that took in all of the regions for the Goldfields electorate. So that put on another 3,600 people at the time to try it out. And then in 2019, they managed to get it into Hinkler, which is Harvey Bay and Bundaberg. Um, and they started that trial with you know 6,000 people. So it has spread along the way. And then we come to present day where it's, it's Hinkler, Harvey Bay to Bundaberg, it's 
Sedona, Kununurra, Wyndham, Kalgoorlie, all the surrounding regions in, in the gold fields. But it's now been extended and expanded to go into the Northern Territory. They couldn't get it through to completely take over the basics card, so they've made it voluntary for people to go from the basics card to the cashless debit card, which is a bit of a trickery because you're still going from one compulsory income management program to a forced income management program. The difference is the basics card is still under government control, whereas the India cashless debit card is privately controlled. It's private company. What does it mean for people on a day-to-day basis? We look at those areas there. With, with the Northern Territory, there's still 50-50 split on their income. Everywhere else is 80-20 split. Cape York is totally different. It's from a different program, but they're all on the cashless debit card, including age pensioners. And so there's no age limit on their region. So basically, 80-20 split on your income. But there's so many things that it doesn't work for. It's not reliable for paying rent because of the strict way in which they want rent paid. You've got to have a signed, fixed, dated lease. A lot of people aren't living in that situation. You know, so if people are share renting or on a periodic lease or they're paying cash rents, a lot of them end up, they end up getting evicted because they can't pay their rents and then they're forced to move out of the region because owners have caught on to the late repayments or not non-payments and have decided that they no longer will rent to people on the Indu cashless debit card. There's been a lot of problems with the card declining out of the blue, especially for people when they're shopping, which leaves them to leave food behind and go without until they can figure out why the card's not working. And, that, and the company will always blame the cardholder or the business. They'll never turn around and say, oh, you know, it's us. They'll always turn around and say, oh, it must have been something you did or must be something to do with their FPOS machine, you know. Money goes missing from cards, accounts, and, and people have big trouble trying to get their money back. And again, they never get an apology or anything like that. Uh, a lot of the time, they'll, get, they'll hear excuses from the company saying it must be something that they've done. You know, the person, they always blame the cardholder or a third party, but they never take... Um, any responsibility for anything. Along the way, it really destroys people's mental health. It really interferes with everything, every part of your life because somebody else has got control of your income. Therefore, they've got control of your decision-making over what you can do, where you can go, what, what plans you can make. This does a lot of people in and they just can't cope with it. A lot of people I know are medicated as a result of being forced onto the car. You know, especially single mums, we find that single mums have the biggest amount of trauma with their card because a lot of the time they've come from domestic violence relationships and then they're entering into this, it's the equivalent of domestic violence relationship again with the department and private company Indu. The damage is, is just unbelievable to people's self-worth, self-esteem, everything. It just runs them into the ground. Does this mean that people can't move from where they're living? In card areas, it's forcing people to move because they end up homeless when then rents are not paid. All right, they end up with a bad rental history, but because of the way that the card has failed, right, owners and landlords in the card areas will no longer take on tenants that are on the Indu cashless debit card. 
So when somebody gets kicked out because they weren't able to pay their rent, they end up having to move away from the area. And we've just found out this week that there's over 5,500 people that are outside trial areas, that are what they call out of region. It's basically, people are being displaced because they, they go, they end up moving a long way away <laughs> and they end up not telling anybody about the card for fear that they can't get a rental. So they move to regions where the card isn't, where people don't know about it in order to get rentals. And then they, if they have troubles with the rent, they fight it all over again. Can you explain if they're on the card and they move to another place, how do they pay for things in another place? If they can get a rental that does centre pay, they can set their rent up through centre pay. Basically, most people keep stum about the, the fact that they're on a cashless debit card. Right? They don't tell the new owner anything about it. So therefore, if they get an approved rental allowance for a signed dated lease, they know that there's going to be a certain amount of time before the card starts up because it's set on a 28-day cycle and our rents here are not paid on 28-day cycles. So over a period of a few months, the rent will fall out of sync with their system and then the person will go to pay their rent and it will decline and they'll turn around and say, oh, but there's not enough money in your rental account. And it's like, how can that be? My pay's gone in. You've got my money. But because they're working on this 28-day cycle, funds aren't released until set days. It gets very confusing for people. It leaves people with rental declines. It forces people to breach rental contracts. And people have argued with India and said, you're forcing me to break my rental contract right? because you're not releasing the funds. Oh, but they'll be available in a couple of days' time. But a couple of days' time, you've got a breach notice for being late. It's not good enough. And then it automatically resets every six months. But they don't send you an email to warn you when that's going to happen. The first you know about it is you have a rental decline. And then you have to submit your lease and your rent certificate all over again from Centrelink and upload the documents. And it usually puts people another week behind in their rent in order to get it reset for the next six months, even though most leases are on 12-month terms. So people all over the country are, have rental problems with the car. Can I focus on women with young children, children still at school? The kids need, at the beginning of the year, they need books, they need school uniforms, they need to pay for excursions, things like that. How does that work? Well, it depends on the school. A lot of the smaller schools around the country don't take the card, right? So this leaves parents with the only alternative is to use their cash portions. And if they can get access, everybody's supposed to be able to get access to $200 extra cash every 28 days, but not necessarily. We're finding that a lot of First Nations people don't get access to it. And a lot of people who are paying rent by using their 20% and their 200 don't get access to it, if, if you understand what I mean. People who can't get a rental allowance approved don't get access to it. So it's hit and miss. So some schools accept the card. One of my friends let me know that um, when she uses the card, it actually is registered separately, which she found quite unusual because normally, you know, if you use an FPOS card, it's not registered separately, but the Indu card is. With her school, I've met parents where they can't buy the school uniforms, they can't buy school books, they can't pay for excursions. 
They definitely can't pay for school photos, anything the kids need. And that includes daycares as well. They can't pay for daycare, kindy, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it all depends on which area somebody's living in, but it makes it near impossible. And, of course, you can't get access to second-hand school uniforms because you have to put in an application to the department. If you find some for sale on, say, Facebook, you have to give the department the person's name and all the details and send a photograph and put an application in to get extra money to be able to pay for what's needed on the second-hand market. So it's quite a nightmare. Where can people go or to whom if they need help? Well, at this stage, they can only like they can make formal complaints and they can ring up central and comp- make formal complaints. They can ring the ombudsman and make complaints, and like uh, the Australian Financial Complaints Authority. But most of the time, I direct people to their local federal censors, so that when they have a problem with India and they're trying to deal with India or Services Australia, I tell people go and speak to your local federal ALP or Greens senator or MP and they'll help you with it and and get things elevated and looked at properly because there isn't any actual support and they'll say to people oh go into the Hindu shop front in your area well in Queensland in Hinkler they have two one's through a job agency impact in Bundaberg the other one's through a neighborhood center in Harvey Bay but in the other regions it's through Centrelink and a lot of the time, Centrelink staff don't have the information to be able to help people. There's no actual legitimate government body that's set up to help people who are on the cashless debit card. So people have to fight it themselves and, and, and get the senators to help them. And any um, welfare advocate. And how many of those are there around? Well, like in Queensland, you can ring Basics Rights Queensland and you can ring... Um, like in WA, welfare rights, WA and stuff like that. So you look for those sort of services in your region. Let's look at the reasons or one of the, whatever they call it a reason that they brought this in in the first place. We're going to stop. We're going to combat drug and alcohol problems. We're going to get rid of gambling. What does the research show in those areas? Well, it hasn't and it can't and never could. Let's look at it critically here. You're controlling somebody else's life decisions by controlling their finances and telling an alcoholic it's going to make you stop drinking. But it's a piece of plastic. It can't cure an addiction. People need services and supports for that, right? And it doesn't work in that respect. To me, it's nothing more than a big smokescreen to demonise people on Social Security. Because, like, for instance, in WA... They don't have poker machines outside of the casino in Perth. So poker machines are banned in the rest of WA. And yet all we heard was poker machines, poker machines, poker machines. But the people in WA don't have access. We found that when the card rolled into Harvey Bay, Bundaberg region, it was and it, it was media because they used the media against everybody to make it out that people on social security or welfare were the only ones gambling and the only ones drinking and the only ones taking drugs. But when the stats came out a year into the car trial in Hinkler, pokey machine revenue had gone up a million dollars a week. You know, it showed that it wasn't the people on social security that had gambling problems, you know, or were spending their money 
They don't have the money to spend. You know what I mean? They're struggling to pay rent and food. Payments are inadequate. That You can't survive on payments. It was just ridiculous. So over the course of the six years, the stats have gone 20% increase in domestic violence. It didn't cut domestic violence. It hasn't cut drinking at all. It hasn't cut drug use. People who had those problems still have those problems, but it just shows that people on the cashless debit card weren't the ones that had the problems. The society still got those issues in the, in the community. It was a smokescreen to get this through, in, in my opinion, to Brand. I mean, f- from the perspective of First Nations communities, I can't see why throwing any more restrictions where you're putting the card in where they already have dry areas, they already have alcohol bans, they already have alcohol purchase limits. What about putting in rehabs? Seduna has been waiting for a rehab for 10 years. Seduna's Aboriginal Health Service is a building falling to pieces. It's got no funding. Why? Why couldn't the money go there instead of putting their people on the cash as debit card? You mean enough money went into that town to get the card into that town? And that town is just about evenly split now between half the population is on the card and the other half's not. Bear in mind that over the last three years, they've also lost a third of their population has moved out. You know, it's not good for business anyway. But I don't know. The solutions to me are services, community services, human services, do you know what I mean, to help people that have issues. But majority of people, I've not met one person on the card that's an addict who fits that stereotype. All the people I speak to are just ordinary people trying to get through on a payment or they're working casually, they're parents, they're people with disabilities, they're you know, carers. And then they try to say, oh, it'll be a budgeting tool. Well, you've got no control over your budget. So that doesn't work. You know, it's a literacy tool. But you're not in control of that budget. Someone else is. Someone else makes the decision. Has this card destroyed families and communities? In a sense of forcing people to move away, yes. I would say it has. So I can only go by hearsay here because I felt it from certain First Nations peoples, where it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back in regards to everything else that's also going on in community for First Nations people. But I can't speak for them because I'm not a First Nations person. But I've been told that it has impacted in regards to youth suicide, especially in East Kimberley, self-harm. When you look at, like, I've had people come to me and tell me where on top of the racism and the and all the other traumas that the communities have gone through, when you get somebody standing in a line at Coles and they're not only racially abused, but now they're, they're abused for having the beggar's card, as it was called. Do you know what I mean? It's just too much, and it's cruel. And it's apartheid. It's financial and social apartheid, no matter which way you look at it, irrespective of whether it's in First Nations communities or in Harvey Bay, Bundaberg, where... We have the biggest trial site of non-Indigenous people. Do you know what I mean? I've found talking to people, the rules don't apply equally, and I, I find that disgusting. People who are white that are on the card get better access to things and have less drama with dealing with the department, whereas a lot of First Nations people probably don't even know what they're entitled to be able to access. A lot of the time they don't even... They, they don't know... They're not... When they get the card, there's nothing in their language to help them, to support them, 
as to how to use it, do you know what I mean? And what they're entitled to as well. So they get left behind. Is the government also trying to expand the the use of this card? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at it. It was supposed to be a one-year trial in 2016 for the community of Seduna and then Kananara, so those two regions. And look where we are six years later. Nearly 15,000 people are on the card. They want to try and push another 23,000 people in the Northern Territory onto the card if they can. They're not getting very far because people are sticking with their basics card. A lot of um, all the peak organisations have made it very clear. First Nations people do not want the cash to debit card in the Northern Territory. And, uh, and people are staying with their basics card because they know what they can do with their basics card. The Nationals took a vote um, last year. They want it rolled out nationally if they get a chance. If that's the case, then they'll be going after, um, from what I saw from the Mindaroo report or submission, is they'll be recommending to put all under 25s on it across the country. And then the other thing that's been spoken about is like the Hinkler model, everybody under 36 on it. They already have age pensioners on it in Cape York. That's part of the FRC program where they're mandated by their community to go on it, but they don't get an option. And if the LNP get back in, that's a life sentence for anybody who's age pension DSP. They'll never get off it, you know what I mean? And that's that's not fair. Because not only have you got the stigma and all the issues with the private company making a profit and not caring about the people and the damage. But people are missing the fact that when you are contracted to this private company without your consent, this private company, Indu, is protected uh, for the breaches in the law that it does against you. So first of all, you're exempted from the Protections of Payments Act in the Social Security Act. You're exempted from that. All right, so that enables Indu to be able to take over your, in- your income. Then you're stripped of your protections under consumer law and Indu and all the businesses associated are protected against the breaches that you could normally do them for, for damages. And then for some reason they took out statutory rights. So your right to remain silent and not disclose personal information, you've lost that right as well. We don't even do that to convicted criminals in prison but they've done it to people on the cashless debit card. Your right to privacy. Indu can share all of your data and information with the US, Israel, Spain, the UK, and any other stakeholder that wants to put their hand up and say, I want to know. They can share all of your personal financial information. You've got all of that, and and they're taking away your autonomy at the same time. This is not good. That is apartheid. When you exclude people from the rule of law and non-discrimination and they've got nowhere to go, people go through the process and a few people have got to AAT tribunals and got off the card. And a lot of people appeal to get off the card and they have been getting off the card, but most of the time there's rubbish excuses made to keep them on the card. And meanwhile, a private company is getting money every time somebody's put on a card and every year that they're on the card, they're getting paid. Is this modelled on what's happening overseas? From my understanding, it was tried in New Zealand and it failed and they dumped it. At the moment, they're trying to digitise our social security and they're in the 
talks with the big four banks to take over everything. If they go for a national rollout, Indu can't cope with it because it's too big for them then. So it has to go to the big four banks to do it. But I did see an article about the digital currency, the way that digitised South African social security system, and that's causing mega, mega problems. So uh, they did have a cashless debit card style system there, and they dumped it, again, because it was a failure. They did try and put it into the UK in 2014. It was dumped before it got started on the grounds that it discriminated against people with disabilities and health issues because it was aimed squarely at people with addictions, which is discriminatory. They had the the luxury of having, at that stage, they were protected by the um, EU Human Rights Charter and international human rights, whereas in Australia, domestic human rights and international human rights are being ignored in this situation. How do you fight it? So if you're issued the card, it depends on your circumstances and how much family support you've got. You can refuse to activate the card and then put in an exemption straight away, put in an opt-out. Most people go for a, a medical wellbeing exemption. Right? That can take up to 30 days. It can also take a lot longer, but they have a, a time limit now. Every person I've seen that's really fought really hard has done it via not activating the card and going and getting medical backup, get their doctors on board and get senators to help them and fight to get off of it. In the first two years of the Fraser Coast or the Hinkler trial, I knew a lady that was it. She refused to activate her card. She was, so you need to look at your circumstances. If you can center pay all of your bills, like your rent, your electricity, your telephone and your school fees, some schools you can do center pay with. If you can cover all of your stuff with centre pay, then you can survive this. You can get through it. But it's hard. It's very hard. But we had two people up here who did it and they got off the card. But it took them a year. <laughs> you know, whereas now I helped a lady in, in WA. We did a big campaign to help her get off the card because she was a New Zealand national. She was in a situation where uh, her owner had already been through having tenants on the Indicard and he'd made it clear that if she was to be forced onto the card, he would have to evict her because he wouldn't take, he couldn't take the loss anymore. He'd been through it before with a previous tenant and she was facing being homeless and we fought really hard with her to get her help and she got off, but she had to go through a wellbeing process. And at that time, she had medical supports in place as well from a domestic violence situation she was going through. So it's very difficult. Um, opt-outs, most people get knocked back straight away on an opt-out and then they have to do it again. We've got some people trying for their third times. We're telling them to now go through AAT tribunals. So it's a very hard fight. You have to look at it from your own personal circumstances to whether you can manage it. If you don't have family supports and you don't have the ability to send a pay all of your bills, then really, if you're a parent, you've got no other option than to activate the card and then start fighting to get off it, which it's harder to do once you've activated. Catherine, who are we and how long have you been going? I'm the main um, admin for No Cashless Debit Card Australia Group and um, I work with the SN7 Resources. And between us, over the last six years, we've maintained Facebook pages and groups for people on the card and getting information out there. We've gone to the Senate's. I've, I've spoken at four Senate inquiries. We've done 
events for cardholders. We've done media recently. Um, SN7 set us up with a... Um, we did an e-petition and we got 17,500 signatures and that was actually tabled last week in, into Parliament. So we haven't stopped. We've just tried to be a voice for the cardholders. So a lot of cardholders will contact me with their issues and then I'll put it out on my Facebook page and I'll direct them to the senators to get help because cardholders have to be proactive themselves in you know, fighting to get things changed or get off the card or get help. But I just point them in the directions they need to go and a lot of times people will stick with me along their journey. I had one lady, she was with me for two years while she was fighting to get off the card. That's all I can do is be a little bit of support for people, direct them where they can go, be the voice and, and, and get their stories out. So the public are aware of how Australians are being treated. That's the trouble, isn't it? The public isn't aware. They are up here, but yeah, in other areas they're not aware, but we need to make them aware because this is not good for community. It's not good for people's mental health. It's not good for people's well-being. It's about profits for private companies. That's all I see in it. I really don't see any benefits considering it's all privatised. That should be ringing alarm bells everywhere. Indu are not accountable to you or me or the Senate or the government like the last Senate estimates. Anne Rustin was asked about Indu's profits and she turned around and said, I'm not interested in their profits. Well, that says it all, doesn't it? You know, she's not interested in what profiteering that is going on off the backs of Australians. It's not good enough. We shouldn't have this situation at all. But we have it, so we fight it. And that's all we can do and, and hope that eventually... I mean, we've got people all over the country who are on this car and they are trying to let people know what it's like. But a lot of people don't believe what they're going through because the Murdoch media is not going to tell you the truth. I've been through that where media have come to me, I've told them things, and then I look in the paper and the pro-card LMP person's got two pages and I've got two paragraphs. We don't shut up, we don't stop. We use Twitter, we use Facebook, we use TikTok and we use word of mouth and, and we just keep going. Thanks to Catherine Wilkson. Do look up the cashless debit Card Australia Group webpage, Facebook, Twitter, etc., and learn more about it. Victoria, to keep us safe, we know what to do. There are only five reasons to leave home shopping for food and supplies that you need, exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible, care and caregiving, authorised work or education if you can't do it from home, getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are mandatory indoors and outdoors, and if you have any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne, a 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. 
please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. In a recent Guardian newspaper article by Jeff Sparrow, he set out what many people have either suspected or known, that the former Labor Prime Minister and President of the ACTU, Bob Hawke, rather than his public persona of that all-round Aussie larrikin, was also an informer for the US government and the CIA. Today, retired trade unionist Jim McElroy We'll follow up on this story. Jim, you never met Hawke, but I'm sure you were aware of the rumours about him, but more importantly, the impact he had on the trade union movement. I didn't know him personally, but, I mean, I was involved in the the socialist movement in Melbourne initially at the time when Hawke's career was beginning. Of course, he was originally the the advocate for the ACTU back in the 60s. That's where he first got his name as the lawyer. And then he became the president of the ACTU from the early 70s. He was involved in a number of different activities as a member of the Socialist Workers League Socialist Alliance at the time. And I was involved in supporting various trade union strikes and so on. I suppose the first, and I did... Note that the first time I ran across Bob Hawke or the role of Bob Hawke was there was a very famous strike of the State Electricity Commission workers in La Trobe Valley in Victoria in 1972, believe it or not. I actually went down to that strike and and wrote about it for the newspaper Direct Action at the time. And that's where we first ran across the uh, question of Hawke's role in, in trying to basically ameliorate strikes and keep uh, the, the trade union movement moderate. And, and that was his role. I can actually quote, I attended a, in February a mass meeting of 3,000 angry power workers in your lawn who'd been out on strike. And he, Hawke, and was there and other union leaders worked together to force them or push them to return to work and accept arbitration. They very reluctantly voted to end their strike. It was well known, his role. Yes, yes, it was It was well well known. And uh, that was from a very early stage. And I think there's, there's strong evidence that he was brought into the role precisely in order to try to tame the, the very strong militancy of the trade unions at the time. In the late 60s, of course, we had the Clary-O'Shea dispute, which probably, you know, the most significant industrial dispute of, of that period, um, with a huge national strike, and the unions were becoming more and more militant. And this coincided, of course, with the Labor Party becoming stronger in the in the electorate and then the election of the Whitlam government, so at the end of 1972. 
there was a huge movement of the unions and general movement of society, uh, the, the youth movement and, the, and, and in the end the majority movement against the Vietnam War, all these things brought together and ended up bringing down the long-standing uh, Liberal country party government and Labor coming to power and everyone was very optimistic. But from very early in the piece, Hawke was playing a, a moderating role became part of a key to his career right through from his union role as president of the ACTU right through to becoming um, prime minister and then the whole trajectory of the competing government. Rather than a moderating role, was he actually more destabilising? Well, of course, remember there were very sharp factional divisions in the trade union movement at the time. He struggled between the socialist left faction and the, the 26 rebel unions in Victoria. And generally speaking, in those days, the Labor Party was much more of a, a real political struggle than uh, what it is today. It's been tamed and probably Hawke, together with Keating, have played a critical role in the taming of the Labor Party. But the interesting thing, of course, in light of these uh, revelations about his connections to the United States is that he was seen as someone who could who could play a role in breaking union solidarity, and that was noted by the the U.S. officials, and in particular the U.S. Labor attaché to the embassy very early in the piece, back in the early 70s. I can remember friends a long time ago saying that he was a CIA agent. Yes, well, that was, if we want to come to the most recent um, revelations, of course there was a long-standing feeling that Hawke, had a, and, and it was known that Hawke had connections with the, with the US. But uh, there's a new paper now by Cameron Coventry from Federation University, which has been released recently, which investigates embassy documents, uh, US embassy documents from the period 1973 to 79. So that was while Hawke was ACTU president. And uh, they reveal, actually through official sources, close links between Hawke and, uh, and the, and the um, US Embassy, including, no doubt, the CIA. And Coventry says that the US valued their relationship with Hawke because he, and this is a quote, helped protect US defence installations, provided information about union disputes, and warned officials that installations could be targeted. The Americans particularly appreciated Hawke's willingness to de-radicalise the labour movement. Coventry says Hawke proved useful in preempting and pacifying unionist uh, disputes. And in another section, it says Hawke was an experienced chameleon, a man who successfully played down his academic record and bookish background to present himself as the ideal Australian labour leader, later known as the Silver Bodgie, of course. What influence did you do you believe he had on the Whitlam government? I don't have direct evidence, uh, you know, of what actually uh, direct influence he had. Of course, you know, it's a whole uh, other question to analyse what happened to the directory of the Whitlam government. It came to power with enormous hopes, the hopes of the whole nation, that, you know, we would see significant change in Australia, and it began very strongly in that respect. But it was hit by an international economic crisis and various other things, and it began to break into factions, you know, and, and no doubt in the background, you know, he was playing a role in 
inflaming the unions in terms of because he saw high wages as a as an economic problem for the Labor government and for the country. So he did play a role in trying to put us a bit of a halter on union struggles, which was true. And then, of course, remember the pretty infamous end of the Whitlam government when Kerr sacked Whitlam and, and Hawke and Whitlam both came out and said, you know, called on the, uh, the Labor movement and the trade unions to not move towards a general strike, which was, in fact, uh, very much a prospect at the time. If, if there had been a call from Hawke and from Whitlam together for a general strike, I believe we would have seen a different course of Australian history, that we would have seen a mass industrial and political struggle which probably may had a very good chance to overturn the Kerr decision, which was not really set in stone at the time. So I think that he played a significant role then. The next probably major aspect of, of Hawke's career was his role in the Medibank strike of 1976. People will remember one of the great achievements of the Whitlam years was the introduction of Medibank as a genuine uh, free national health scheme. When Fraser came to power, he proceeded to try to abolish Medibank, and which he did do. But then there was a general strike. That was a very significant event. Uh, I just remember it's probably the biggest single day of mass industrial action we've seen. Every I remember I was in Sydney at the time. There was no buses, no trains, no nothing. The Sydney Sydney looked a bit like what it does at the moment. It looked like city under COVID lockdowns. But then at the end of it, um, Hawke made negotiations and eventually struggle was lost in the short term. But then, of course, uh, later on provided the basis for the re-emergence of Medicare under the um, Hawke-Eating government later. Just to go back one year to 1975, where you had the sacking, as you said, of the, of the Whitlam government, and Pine Gap was, many people believe, was a big part of, of that. And the fact that Hawke was working with the US to keep their spy facilities going in there, Whitlam gets sacked because he tried to close down or, or ameliorate the power of Pine Gap. Actually, the specific mention in the, in the Coventry article, which is referred to by Jeff Sparrow, who, who, who wrote a, an, an account of it all in the July 3 Guardian this year, he refers not so much to Pine Gap but to Northwest Cape, which was another crucial base in the north, and it, it played a, a significant role in, in buying on well, China, the Soviet Union, Vietnam, and so on. The Labor attaché, who was closely linked to the CIA, contacted Bob Hawke about a potential union dispute at the joint US-Australian spy base at the Northwest Cape. And the cables from the embassy, which have been released, and Tuppentry um, records them, that Hawke, quote, volunteered to intervene informally saying he felt concern and surprise at the militancy of the workers. So that led to a much more um, attention being paid to Hawke by the, by the US authorities. And a cable was sent to Washington from the US ambassador to Australia in 1974, emphasising the importance of an upcoming visit by Hawke to the United States. So he was being groomed by you know, elements in the United States. The quote is, there is little doubt, this is from the embassy cable itself, there is little doubt that he has a major potential as a Labor Party leader. 
now 44, and this is in 1974, he has every prospect of being a major figure on political scene for the next 20 years or so, and it'll be worth our while to make a real effort to develop a worthwhile program for him. Coventry also said that the US valued their relationship with Hawke because, quote, he helped protect US defence installations, provided information about union disputes and warned officials that installations would be targeted. So not only was his role in the union movement directly valued, but his role inside the Labor Party of trying to protect US interests in Australia. And of course that came to a fore when he became Prime Minister in the following decade. And on the program next week we'll hear part two of that interview with Jim and also reflections on Bob Hawke by Cora Winter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.